You can't paint your walls. You can't have a pet. You can't guarantee that you'll have somewhere to live in six months' time. Millions of us are paying sky-high rents, but struggling to make a home in a housing system where safety and security take second place to landlords' profits. There's no certainty because bad landlords just want to exploit the market. When I first moved to Bristol two years ago, I paid £500 a month rent. I now nearly pay £700 a month rent for the same room. But some landlords actually charge potential tenants just to look around the property because yeah. the demand is so high, um, they feel that they can. Some private tenants face mould and broken boilers but don't complain. According to Shelter, Complaining to your landlord about conditions in your home more than doubles your chance of being evicted. Private rented in this country means insecure. At any point we could be asked to leave, at any point, for no reason. Mould is all over the walls and spread through the entirety. And this extractor fan here has been broken since I moved in. To wake up one morning and put my rent up by two or three hundred pounds a month, I have nothing that I can do about that. That needs to change. So. How did private renting become so prevalent? Why are the rights of tenants so weak? And what does this mean for our ability to make a home? Welcome to the New Economics Podcast. This week we're asking, how can we all have a home? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. So this week, I'm chuffed to be joined by Vicky Spratt, housing correspondent at The Eye and author of Tenants, and Kieran Yates, journalist and author of the upcoming All the Houses I've Ever Lived In. That's a mouthful. Hi, Vicky and Kieran. Hi. Hello. Hi. Thanks so much for being with us. So we'll dive in because it's a chunky one. So as I said in the intro, you know, often we read about housing in papers and people use phrases like the housing market or getting on the property ladder we kind of talking about housing in terms of investment and money and portfolios, but both your books make it clear that our homes are obviously much more than this. They're the places where we live our intimate domestic lives. Um, so starting with you, Vicky, why was it important for you to include this perspective in your book? That's a really important point, And it's a good question. I think the reason for me is twofold. Firstly, because my own family have had experience of periods of housing stress and understand the importance of social housing for enhancing sort of life chances and, and giving giving stability. So I think I've always had that impressed upon me, particularly by my grandparents. So I have found the way we talk about housing and homes as assets and not homes, particularly confronting and potentially problematic and worth interrogating. And then secondly, as a journalist in the last decade or so of covering, I suppose, the housing crisis and social inequality more broadly, I've seen the way that we have financialized housing and turned homes into assets become quite a big <laughs> social and economic problem. I'm laughing because that's a huge understatement. I'd say the most pressing social and economic problem this country faces. So that's why it was really important to reflect that in tenants. Thanks so much, Vicky. And Kieran, what's your take on this? How, how has it kind of come to this, I guess, that we've lost the real meaning of a home and how do we get it back? I think similar to Vicky, you know, my um, starting point into thinking about housing in this way is based on my own personal experience of having housing precarity baked into my lived experience from a very, very long age. 
And my book kind of explores the fact that if you have experienced housing precarity early on, it's very likely, especially if you're a working class person, that it will follow you throughout your life, which has certainly been my experience. And so, you know, this idea of of movement, of kind of living between the cracks of a historic housing crisis has certainly been my experience. And it certainly framed a lot of the conversations that I've had with various people across culture as a journalist. And I think that as a result, it becomes very clear very quickly that housing is something that the rest of our lives uh, orbit around. And so it's really important to, you know, kind of have that stable foundation. And we know that 17 and a half million people in the UK currently don't have a stable or secure home. And so, you know, the things that Vicky and I are talking about are experiences that more and more people are talking about every day. And more and more people find themselves at the hard edge of this crisis. But I think it's also important to say that we are talking in a British context, and there is a specificity with the relationship that you know British history has with land ownership and very distinct class and wealth inequalities. And so this has kind of continued to braid into the way that we think about home ownership today, you know, the sort of last 10 years of government rhetoric, but certainly before that, they've been encouraging us to you know, buy a home <laughs> at all costs is distinctly related to a kind of British cultural obsession with home ownership. And I think that, you know, the conversation that we're going to have today really comes out of that framework. Mm, it's really interesting. I think that idea of it being a kind of distinctly British thing particularly interesting, especially thinking about, you know, as I'm sure we'll get on to talking about Thatcherism and the relationship between kind of home ownership and, you know, neoliberal ideas of self-responsibility and autonomy and, you know, the development of that rhetoric since the 70s. Vicky, you set out in your book a kind of myriad of problems when it comes to homes in the UK, which I'm sure anyone who's rented will be familiar with, you know, the expense, damp, mould, the risk of eviction, the insecurity. Could you just maybe give us a brief summary of what you learned about what it's like for private renters at the moment in the UK? Yeah, absolutely. I'm resisting the urge to talk about how I actually think for what it's worth, just really quickly, that the British obsession with home ownership was quite... Um, it was also also integral in the way that the British Empire functioned. And I'm working on something really interesting with the academic Kojo Koram about this at the moment. He's the author of Uncommonwealth. We love Kojo. <laughs> he's <laughs> on amazing. On the podcast, OG, yes. Yeah. yeah, he's incredible. And there's so much to say about how I actually think now it's a global crisis. But I, I think Kieran's right. In Britain, there's a very particular mindset. But I think, how are things for private renters right now? Well, they suck, to use a technical term. Private renting is the most expensive it has ever been in history since records began. It's not affordable. It's insecure. You can be evicted at any time by your landlord, who does not have to give you a reason. The government promised that they were going to do something about that and ban something called Section 21 in um, 2019, and we're still waiting for it to happen. And conditions are poor. Millions of privately rented homes are plagued by what are known as category one hazards, which include black mold or electrical faults. And as things stand, the decent home standard, which is meant to be enforced in social housing to make sure that these hazards are addressed and don't exist, has not yet been applied to the private rented sector. The government have also promised to do that as part of a raft of reforms, which will be called the Renters Reform Act. That has been 
kicking around again since 2019. And a few weeks ago, I was told by the housing minister that we would see it before the end of this parliament, which if anybody is familiar with the parliamentary calendar is, is this summer. So coming up pretty fast, how they're going to get that legislation through so quickly, I have absolutely no idea, but I'd love to know because it's really, really urgent out there. People cannot pay their rent. They are being evicted if they can't pay and they're living in terrible conditions. And because home ownership is also the most expensive and least affordable that it has ever been in history, house prices are higher than they've ever been and home ownership is less affordable than it has ever been. More and more people are in the private rented sector who would have once owned a home in the same way that more and more people who would have once been in social housing rent privately because we don't have enough social housing. So you've got this situation, we've got like an overheated and expanded private rented market where tenants' rights have been eroded as a result of the 1988 Housing Act, which came in under Margaret Thatcher. And it's really a perfect storm at a time when you face economic uncertainty, like a cost of living crisis and rising interest rates, because landlords, from what I'm hearing, are passing on their cost of living concerns to their tenants. But there's no mechanism to stop them doing that. Mm, I mean, so the I'm going to ask a question in a second that's kind of pretty much about, you know, how did we get here? Because I want to dive into a lot of those things that you just uh, laid out there. But before we move on to that, I just wanted to bring in to the conversation, you know, people who are often left out of mainstream conversations. So for example, Kieran, in your book, you say that a lot of writing on housing currently focuses on the white working class and, and, and the middle class. And I've definitely noticed that kind of, you know, much more of a focus in recent years on the middle class in particular, you know, the squeezed middle and folks who are kind of, you know, experiencing this kind of precarity for the first time. And, and not to say that we should or shouldn't be talking about them, but um, I was wondering who you reckon is being left out of the conversation and how their experiences might be different. Well, I think it makes a good point about the fact that if the you know the current housing market is not working for upper middle class tenants, renters and homeowners, then who is it working for, quite frankly? And it also is a really good question to ask because it frames this discussion about housing as a much larger discussion about, you know, the way in which particular groups are deeply impacted by a range of factors. And so when we t- when I think about housing, and I wrote about this in the book, you know, I think about it as a public health emergency. You know, we are living in a public health crisis, like Vicky mentions, you know, when it comes to disrepair claims, there are specific groups that have less agency to be able to advocate for their own health as tenants, they don't have access to legal aid. And so, you know, small things like this, before we even get to translation, before we even get to, you know, ideas of discrimination from your local housing association, before we even get to, you know, huge demonization of the media of immigrants, we suddenly realise that this is an interconnected crisis. We're talking about access to green space. We're talking about public health. We're talking about the quality of air that we're breathing. We're talking about how this filters into a larger media rhetoric about immigration and who does and doesn't deserve to have access to a home in the UK. And so, you know, once we recognize that these things are connected, once we recognize that, you know, the kind of embedded racist industrial housing complex affects white middle class people as well, we can really start to have very open, broad conversations about where we are. You know, it is not a coincidence that 54% of disabled people do not have safe and secure homes, or that black people are 70% more likely to be impacted by housing emergency, or the fact that one in four 
trans tenants are you know experiencing homelessness at one point in their lives so we are looking at a society where those who are most marginalized are experiencing things that have an impact on our whole communities on our whole society at large and there's no way to have a conversation about housing without recognizing how this plays into everything you know even if we must make i don't know an, a sort of economic case for secure housing we only need to think about the cost to treasury for an aging population of people who are in insecure private rental accommodation and you know what that future looks like absolutely i mean the, particularly the point there about you know um aging population and thinking about this i guess across how how this housing crisis is impacting people across generations. Um, Vicky, I'm wondering if you could, you know, come in on that because, you know, we're all familiar with the idea of the young professional renter who can't afford to save for a house deposit. But, you know, obviously this has ripple effects across the generations. And I'm wondering, yeah, if you could say something about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think Kieran makes a really important point, which is the intersectionality of the housing crisis is an opportunity, I think, to build coalition between different groups, which ultimately can be a really, really powerful force for highlighting the change that needs to come. And I think it's true that groups that are marginalised due to structural racism, sexism, transphobia, homophobia, are particularly impacted by the housing crisis because those prejudices and biases exist in our society. So, of course, they're going to feed through into how housing provision is accessed and administered. And I think we saw that really clearly with the absolutely... I want to say shocking, but to be honest, I didn't even find the case shocking because it was only a matter of time until something like this happened. But the case of Awabi Shack in Rochdale at the end of last year. So this was a two-year-old boy who died because he was exposed to black mold in the social home that he lived in that was managed by a housing association. And the coroner ruled that it was the black mold that had killed him. And his parents were Sudanese and um, they had been refugees at one point, I believe. And some of the emails that had gone back and forth and some of the things that had been said to them were undoubtedly laced with unacceptable biases. They were blamed for the mould. There's no way it could possibly have been their fault. So I think there are examples that are getting a lot of mainstream media attention, quite rightly, which connect the dots, right, between how different groups are being treated. And I think, I think you know, to move that on to answer your question about generations, young adults, quote unquote, generation rent are aging. <laughs> like I'm, I'm supposed, supposedly a member of generation rent on paper, even though I do actually own my home at this point. And I'm 35. Millennials are, are nearly 40. Many of them have children. Generation Z will age too. And the number of older renters has been growing in recent years over the last decade, the number of over 50s and over 60s who rent. So Everybody knows this is a ticking time bomb. Those aren't my words. They're the words of Polly Neat, who's the CEO of Shelter. And I think it's been a known problem for a really long time that younger generations are, are particularly affected by this. And I don't know what it will take to move the needle on it because building coalition between the young and the old hasn't really worked. I think that there are obvious reasons for that, whether they're right or wrong is another discussion. But I think older generations are so worried about how they're going to pay for their care. That's not in their interest for house prices to fall. Maybe that speaks more to the cost of care than it does to how I feel about older generations. I think it's understandable that everybody feels like they have to look out for themselves in this economy because they do. And that's a problem with the system. 
And I think that's what we should be talking about rather than sort of waging intergenerational warfare. But I think it's really important to talk about building coalition between different groups, even within the younger demographics, because not all millennials are created equal. Not all members of Gen Z are. I think it's the lower income private renters that I am particularly concerned about right now. And of course, private renters on middle incomes are being really, really acutely affected by historically high rents too. But if you're a low income renter, your housing benefit probably doesn't cover your rent because housing benefit has been frozen at 2019, 2020 levels. And we've seen historic rent inflation since then. And that means I'm hearing from people who are making absolutely impossible choices. And I think what is going on economically at the moment is a real tipping point in terms of the number of people who are going to be made homeless and fall into serious rent arrears. And I hope that that will change the conversation and will will make the case for more social housing. Because if that doesn't, I really don't think anything can. Mm, I mean, as you say, it's clearly deeply unsustainable and it really, you know, certainly seems that we're approaching that tipping point. So looking back then around, you know, towards how we ended up in this position in the first place. I know that in your book, Vicky, you talked about, you know, the impact of right to buy policy on the amount of council housing, which you mentioned. And then also, you know, that the the fact that politicians have outsourced vital resource to unqualified individuals, private landlords, um, and the impact that's had as well. So yeah, I guess, you know, let's let's start to to jump into that well. How the hell did we get here? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Stunned silence. There's there's so much to say, but I think for the sake of ease, there's one there's one particular point in history that I always point to if you want to understand the current situation. And the caveat here is that this is omitting loads of stuff that happened throughout the 20th century that is really important and discussed at length in tenants. But I think in terms of the crisis we face right now, I would pick the 1988 Housing Act. And I think I described that in the book as ground zero for the crisis that we're facing now. That's really for one reason. It introduced Section 21 evictions, which I think are a leading cause of homelessness. Well, I don't think that, sorry, they are a leading cause of homelessness. And I think that has sort of engendered the precarity that we have in the housing market. The 1988 Housing Act also did away with rent regulation or rent control. But I think that's really key too, because up until that point, we did actually have rent regulation in this country. And getting rid of that has allowed landlords to sort of charge whatever they like. And I'm always told that they can only charge what tenants can afford. But we're seeing right now that that's absolutely categorically not the case. And I think it's also worth noting that under Margaret Thatcher, the way that social housing is funded fundamentally changed and housing associations were created. So that took a lot of the social housing building and management out of the hands of local councils and put them into the hands of of housing associations. That was really key. And of course, prior to that, she did also introduce right to buy a policy which enables council tenants to buy their homes at a discount, which is fine. I don't have a problem with social housing tenants or council housing tenants being able to buy their homes in principle. The issue is that they weren't replaced. So we ended up selling off all these these homes and not replacing them, which has caused the social housing shortage that we're in now. And then on top of that, this kind of great irony, if you're going to do an Alanis Morissette, isn't it ironic version of the housing crisis, this would definitely have to be a line in it. But like loads of those homes are now owned by private landlords who rent them out to low income renters. And that's paid for by housing benefit through the taxpayer. So taxpayers are basically subsidizing 
landlords because we don't have enough social housing. Ideal. Kieran, what have you got to throw into this mix of historical <laughs> soup? <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, I think Vicky's obviously right to identify ownership because, you know, we talk a lot about the need for building more social rented housing, which like certainly will solve a corner of the crisis. Because as we know, the UK hasn't significantly increased its stock in a decade. And as a result, we've become reliant on private landlords to provide stock and the power that that has granted many landlords enables them and rogue landlords and letting agents to basically name their price. And that's what's happening. And so, you know, when we see the cost of rent escalating out of control, regulation is something that is completely urgent, something that we need to think about and advocate for straight away, because it's an unsustainable crisis. We simply cannot survive under the undignified conditions that this structural metric is offering to us. But I think there's a couple of like more sort of larger ideological things too, which is that you know, housing law is a notoriously complicated and difficult element of law to understand. Lots of people, you know, in my reporting, but even in my own family growing up, learn about the details of housing law when they'd, you know, come across it. When I was in uni, my mum, you know, was calling me about something called bedroom tax because she was hearing about it and she was getting letters about it because, you know, she uh, lives in an estate just outside Birmingham. And, you know, it was a, a real scramble to try and understand actually what does this mean and how does this impact me? And, you know, there was very little that has been done by government, certainly, to try and uh, make sure that vulnerable groups predominantly, but all of us really, have a good sense of what housing law means, what our rights are, how we live, how we are impacted by these changes to law and what we can do to protect ourselves. And so when it comes to building coalitions, I think some of the most optimistic uh, things are things like renters unions who make it their business to share this administrative work. You know, they answer questions, they do information sharing, they do workshops. And these things are increasingly important to feel like you are just not left in the dark, as so many people are in this country. And then finally, I think that, you know, this idea of submitting to the government rhetoric of the last 10, 20 years, which has framed us as separate interest groups has just done such a number to create these factions. You know, it means that homeowners have seen themselves often as separate interest groups to people in social housing, to people who are private rented, and so on and so on and so on. It's clear now that as we're all uniquely affected by the housing crisis, albeit to different degrees, it's really important for us to, again, understand how interconnected this is. So when I'm at renters unions meetings, for instance, it's so important to make the case that it's really important for homeowners to be very aware of how to advocate for private renters. It's very important for you know people in your community maybe to know how you might ward off a bailiff that might come to your neighbor's house. It's really important to know how we can better advocate for clean air in your local area. And so I think what the government would have us do is see ourselves as separate interest groups and just fight it out amongst each other, which kind of speaks to what Vicky's talking about, about sort of, you know, stoking the flames of intergenerational war when it comes to ownership too. But we know that the only way that we're going to get through this crisis is through information sharing, 
is through a real generosity, inviting people to have these conversations, to you know try and be as transparent as we possibly can, even if it feels uncomfortable, and kind of learn from what activists are doing and see little things that we can do as really important and urgent parts of activism to contribute to our local community and the way that we can all access home. Mm, I mean, as you say, it feels like we could do a whole podcast just on the how did we get here question. And there's so much to be said, but it feels like that really crucial point around the response to this needing to be an intersectional one and a one that kind of, you know, one that really draws on the strength and solidarity that already exists across our movements feels like just, yeah, such a vital thing to take forward. So let's just bring our attention back to the present for a second. Vicky, you wrote in a recent column that in almost a decade of reporting on the housing crisis, I didn't think it would be possible for things to get worse, uh, but that the inflation crisis has done just that. So it wouldn't be an F podcast if we didn't talk about inflation. Uh, So I thought I could just quickly ask you why have the high rates been so damaging in the housing sector in particular? Yeah, that's a really important question. And it actually links back to something I wanted to pick up on that Kieran said. So I suppose as a journalist, I tend to see a lot of the amazing grassroots work that's going on right now from renters unions and different charities, wonderful and vital as it is, as a symptom of the breakdown of the welfare state, right? Like, people at a grassroots level are having to share information, share resources and and do work that was once done, you know, for instance, sharing legal information by legal aid, because we have legal aid deserts across the country. So I find that really important, because I think it tells you about what has happened to the, the social safety net. And I think Kieran mentioned about rent control, or rent, rent regulation. I think this is another really important point. Right now, with where we are, I don't know that rent control or rent regulation would work. That doesn't mean that it's not needed. And I'm going to explain why, because it's about interest rates. Whether you like it or not, there are now more people living in privately rented homes than there are living in social homes. So we have outsourced social housing, which was intended mostly, but not exclusively, for people on low incomes or people who have complex needs. We have outsourced that to private landlords who are, generally speaking, buy-to-let landlords, private individuals with a few properties. Of course, there are big private landlords as well, big companies and individuals who have huge portfolios. But studies show that the majority are private individuals with one or a couple of properties. Now, they've bought those properties thinking it's a good investment, that you make money on housing. Again, whether that's right or wrong is a separate discussion. We could probably do a whole podcast on it. But we are where we are, right? So that's the situation. Now interest rates are going up. They are the highest they've been since the global financial crisis of 2008. What I am seeing, and I just reported on some data from UK Finance, who used to be called the Council of Mortgage Lenders, is that the number of buy-to-let mortgages in arrears is increasing. Why do we think that is? Well, UK Finance and various other people I've spoken to think that's because low-income private renters who pay those landlords' mortgages can't afford their rent and are falling behind because housing benefit doesn't cover rents, as I mentioned earlier. So with inflation, what we're seeing is that the system we've set up, which is a very precarious system, which relies on not just the housing market, which is basically a very, very volatile place where property prices go up and down, um, 
and, and also global financial markets, which as we're seeing right now, are also very volatile, is kind of falling apart. And I think that's a sort of case in point. Now, landlords being hit by rising rates and also the other inflationary pressures in, you know, in their personal lives on, on their cost of living are struggling, that could cause them to either hike up rents, which their tenants may or may not be able to pay or will get into debt to pay or fall into arrears and then maybe they'll end up homeless, or they're going to default. And then those homes won't be in the private rented sector and we don't have enough social housing to plug the gap. And on top of that, homeowners are now being hit by rising rates and not all homeowners are wealthy. This doesn't get discussed enough either. I think it's a third, according to the Joseph Roundtree Foundation, a third of homeowners are technically in poverty. So if their mortgages go up, that's a really big problem. And a lot of people have used affordability schemes like the one I used, bought at the top of the market, relying on rates remaining low, and they are going to struggle when their mortgage repayments go up. So it's all linked. And I think the cost of living beyond interest rates and interest rates combined with the housing crisis is a huge economic problem. And at the moment, I'm not really sure that there is a solution. And this is why something like rent regulation that we really, really need and, and has been implemented in Scotland would not be easy to implement, actually, because what do you do about landlords? What do you say to the banks? The government has no real jurisdiction over banks who set the rates for their customers. So I think what we're living through is really exposing the fragility, actually, of the way that housing is financed. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's a lot in there. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Again, yeah. No, so no, I mean, no, it's not. I think it's, I, I think we're, we're very lucky to have on the podcast two people who are so good at um, distilling such kind of, yeah, incredibly overwhelming information, but making it still seem, um, you know, processable and actionable as well. And that's, I guess, my next question is what action is being taken. I know that you said there, Vicky, that it, it doesn't, there's no easy solutions, but I guess I'm wondering what, for example, our politicians are doing about this. I know that Rishi Sunak has announced his five priorities for the country this year and Keir Starmer has five missions for a better Britain and neither of them feature housing. So yeah, I mean, I guess my question would be maybe coming to you first, Kieran, what do you think is going to happen, should happen, needs to happen in terms of starting to right some of these wrongs? Um, what is it that, if anything, we could maybe be hopeful about? Yeah, I mean, Labour just this week have declared themselves proudly the party of home ownership. And this has kind of been the rhetoric of both parties for as long as I can remember. So, you know, they are kind of talking to this sort of, you know, Cameron's aspiration nation, this sort of idea that we all need to continue to aspire to home ownership, which feels increasingly out of touch, but is important to recognize because we're talking about home ownership, which in, you know, five or, or like really 10 short years has become such a luxury commodity that it has become increasingly difficult for lots of people to feel like they can advocate for the idea of housing as a right for everyone because it just feels so rare and so out of touch and so when the idea of home ownership becomes abstract we've seen government really jump on that and say okay well it becomes concrete if you just work harder 
and it becomes concrete if you just kind of follow <laughs> our economic agenda, which is not doing so good so far. But I think it's a really good question because, you know, our political narrative is not disconnected from all of the elements that we've discussed on the podcast. When we're talking about benefit systems not reflecting the cost of renting, that is because rhetoric has allowed that to happen. It has allowed an environment to demonize working class people in receipt of benefits and made it easier to cut those, to cut access to a secure home. When we're talking about rent increasing 11% even from last January, at the same time we're experiencing these historic wage freezes in public sector jobs. That is because, again, the government has allowed an environment that has made it easier to squeeze public sector workers. And so I do think that if we're thinking about ways out, it's about looking at how these kind of labor movements are resisting and pushing back, you know, how striking workers are resisting and pushing back and saying we simply need increased working conditions and this can create coalitions which will benefit everyone. We need to look at how that then filters into rent strike activity. We need to look at how this sort of affects all the newer conversations that feel connected to historic, you know, working class labor movements that were related to housing because the working class housing movements have always been about being in service to workers' rights and tenants' rights and rent stabilization and rent caps and good quality housing and crucially mechanisms for long-term housing. And so I think that policy is obviously like an area of focus, but it is not the area of focus in the immediate for me, although there are things I would advocate for, obviously, as I'm sure Ricky would too. In fact, you know, in both our books, we have a like a fairly lengthy conclusion where there are things that we'd like to see change in policy. But I do think that kind of local pushback, labor movements, rent strike movements are doing huge, important, optimistic, joyful work in really kind of making clear what the issues are on an individual perspective and then discussing them with the group and saying, this is how we move together. And I think that we've seen a lot of success stories that keeps me optimistic. And like certainly my reporting, when we're talking about optimistic responses, has been about how we kind of collectivize. And there's lots to say about this, but yeah, that would be my kind of takeaway. So we're not just like, completely depressed <laughs> yeah I mean it's a good place to start for sure in terms of where we go from here Vicky I'm sure that you have thoughts on this I, you know I was going to ask you about the renters reform bill and about building more social homes but yeah where do you want to take this where do you think that we should be going well Kieran makes really important points and as I said before I think there are lots of grassroots organizations doing vital work but and I've actually written about this you know at length We have a rich history of rent strikes in this country. The reason we ended up with rent regulation after the First World War was because a lady from Glasgow called Mary Barber led a rent strike in the Glasgow docks area when landlords started putting up the rent to wait for it, capitalise on people moving to Glasgow to work as part of the war effort. Like landlords have been at this for a long time, but that's, you know, rent strikes work. That's how we ended up with the rent regulation that was scrapped in the 1988 Housing Act, although it went through different iterations throughout the 20th century and there were different pieces of legislation, which I won't bore you with. But right now, I actually, 
you know, I wouldn't encourage anybody to stop paying their rent because you can end up with a Section 8, you can end up in court, you can end up with a CCJ, which will go on your credit score. I report in eviction courts and I see that happening to people and that will scar them financially for years. So whether, you know, whether the principles of rent strikes are right or wrong, I think where we are now, there's a reason why we don't see those kind of big national rent strikes happening, because that kind of striking has been made very, very difficult. And the sanctions that you can face are really, really serious. So for me, as important and vital as all of that grassroots work is, and I hope it continues, and I'm sure that it will, I do still see it as as a symptom of, of the crisis. So I do think for me, policy is a focus, because I've seen the work of some of those grassroots organizations when they come together, for instance, as part of the Renters Reform Coalition, which I've reported on a lot, which consists of tenants unions and organizations like the Joseph Roundtree Foundation and Generation Rent all coming together. They do drive change. And the Renters Reform Coalition have been feeding in on the Renters Reform bill, which hopefully will become the act. And that is a group of people who are represented all over the country who have an input from their local members too. So I do think it feeds up to policy in Westminster. And ultimately, again, whether we like it or not, that is where legislation comes from. And I think we are seeing change. You know, as I said, I was with the housing minister a couple of weeks ago. She's promised that the Section 21 ban is going to come. Let's hope that it does. I think that the needle is moving amongst the politicians we currently have at the Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities when it comes to social housing too. I mean, Michael Gove has literally in the last couple of days announced that councils will be able to keep 100% of their right to buy receipts for two years and put that back into building new social homes. A year ago, an announcement like that would have been unthinkable. Okay, I think sadly, that is all we have time for. Um, But as I've said, we've covered so, so much in this. And I really get that it's just the tip of the iceberg. So I really would recommend listeners to go out and grab your books and also to check out your work for more information on, you know, what action can be taken, because I, for one, feel like riled up to to do something about this now. So coming to you first, Vicky, thanks so much for joining me. If people want to find out about uh, your work a bit more or, you know, your book, where can they go? What should they read? How can they do that? Well, in this economy, I feel like I don't really want to ask anybody who can't afford to to spend money on my book. But if you can afford to, it's available pretty much everywhere and it's called Tenants. Um, you can also read my writing at the iPaper, um, but you do have to subscribe after a certain point for that. So I would say follow on Twitter and Instagram where I try and share as much as I can. Perfect. And Kieran, same question. Yeah, my book is called All the Houses I've Ever Lived In. Uh, it's out on April the 27th, but you can get it now. And I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. And um, my book is kind of structured in 14 different chapters. And each chapter tells us something different about the housing crisis that we find ourselves in. But hopefully, as like Vicky's, it, it kind of has a joyful conclusion or at least some kind of optimism to take with you. So... Yeah, I hope I hope listeners and I hope readers can find that from both of us. I'm sure they can. Thank you both so, so much. Uh, that is it for today's new economics podcast. We'll be back soon with more. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. The New Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, produced by Becky Malone, Margaret Welsh and Katrina Gaffney. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe. <laughs>